0: Okay, we're going to be in Matthew 24, talking about eschatology. That's a big word for study of the end times, okay? Now, I don't know of any other topic that's probably been more capitalized, uh, more theorized, more marginalized, for that matter, uh, than the second coming. And there are a lot of different positions, so let me just right up front tell you that there are many different perspectives on the second coming of Christ, okay? Okay. There are a lot of different titles. We're just going to look at two this morning. I, I believe they're the the two predominant ones, but there there are many, and there are many different uh, theories about how it will come. Many different interpretations about how it will occur, and uh, we can, if you look at this passage right here, Matthew 24, that we're going to be reading this morning. Uh, there are many hard verses in this passage. And uh, what many people will do is they will take their eschatology view, in other words, their view of how Jesus will return, and then a lot of times we'll try to read Scripture through uh, that lens. And I think we have to be careful as we read Scripture not to already uh, premeditatively determine this is the way it's going to have to be and I'm going to make all the Scripture fit in uh, to my personal eschatology or to my personal taste which may also be the case sometimes. So as we look at this passage right here, I'd ask that you kind of look at it. You, if you were raised like me, I was raised something called premillennial dispensationalism. And then I paid good money at Southwestern Seminary to be one as well, okay? And so uh, that's what I've studied, I, and I'm very sympathetic to that position. So that's one position. Matter of fact, if you've read any of the left-behind books, then that's, the, uh, that's kind of the perspective uh, that Lahay takes. Now, there's another perspective called the preterist position. Now, pure preterist would say everything has already happened in the past, but most people, most preterists would be what we call partial preterists. And what preterist means is that some of this has already occurred. So, the easy way for you to understand it is a dispensationalist would say most, the vast majority of the prophecies and of the events talked about in the New Testament are still yet to come. Particularly when you look at Revelation, but even as they would look at um, Matthew 24, where the preterists would say that uh, a lot of these, if not most of these, have already occurred. A partial preterist would say there's still things to, to come, but also uh, most of these have already taken place. So there's kind of the, an easy way to understand those two major positions preterists, past, dispensationalists, future. Okay? And so most of the time when people will read passages like Matthew 24, they will read that through the lens of which they have. Now, you have to be careful. Just because you write the most books and you sell the most copies doesn't make you right. Okay? So just want to make sure we all understand that. And uh, I I, I think that, uh, that it's wonderful that people are studying the second coming. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament 300 times that Jesus is coming back. So that's a given matter of fact, if you want the three application points for my sermon, and that way uh, if all the rest of this bores you, at least you've got three things you can walk away with, I'll go ahead and give them to you right now. Number one, Jesus is coming. Okay, He's coming again. Number one, Jesus is coming again. Number two, we need to be ready. And number three, we need to help others to get ready. So Jesus is coming. That's a given. That's the fact. Uh, The Bible tells us that we're blessed in the book of Revelation if we study these things. Uh, The Bible is very clear. Jesus is very clear that He is coming again. So that's just a given. And so we want to establish that fact right off. Secondly, we need to be ready that when Jesus comes back, we need to be ready and prepared. Number three, we need to help others get ready. Now, I gave you a little glossary of terms to help understand, and we're not going to go into all of these, but the first one you see there are the Olivet Discourse. This is in your bulletins. uh, And this is Jesus speaking here in Matthew 24 and 25, and he's giving what they call the Olivet Discourse. And he's asked by his disciples a few questions. He's sitting up on a ridge uh, looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he begins to explain some of the questions that they're asked. And then you see the tribulation, the rapture. Uh, The word rapture is not actually found in Scripture, but we have a reference in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 where it tells us there that um, uh, basically the children of God will be called up And so that's where that term comes from, the millennium. That's not a specific word in Scripture either, uh, but it means thousand-year reign. And uh, some take that literal. Matter of fact, uh, we have what we call the premillennialists. We just talked about that, the dispensational premillennialists, who believe that Jesus will come back before the millennium reign. Then you have what we call amillennialists, okay? Amillennialists believe that it's really more metaphorical. In other words, we are living in the millennial reign right now. Just like much of Revelation is uh, an allegory, they look at the millennial term there, they look at the thousand year reign as being uh, really more of a metaphor. So basically, a millennial would be no millennial. Okay, we're we're in that process right now. And then there's postmillennialism. Now, most people fall into the two camps: the premillennial and the a millennial. Uh, the postmillennial we're not going to talk about uh, much because really that's the perspective that we're getting. The world is getting better and better, and we're going to evolve into that state of a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to become so good and uh, so moral and so advanced that. Uh, the, usher, the kingdom of God will just come in because we'll all be prepared. Well, hardly anybody believes that anymore. I mean, World War I kind of shot it down. Then World War Two killed it. Uh, terrorist attacks. I mean, we're looking at that. We're thinking, we're not getting that much better. Okay, so we won't spend time there. Uh, if, you, if you're post and you want to yell at me later, that's great. Uh, but the two that we'll really focus in on right here this morning, and I, I want you to think about we're really just going to read Scripture and try to understand from that lens uh, this passage right here. Uh, but those are the two major perspectives and the two major views. So uh, as we look at that, those are good understandings to have in the back of our minds as we look at this passage. Uh, You know, uh, as far as capitalizing on this, uh, that's always occurred, and uh, if you'll look, you'll start to notice people making statements about the second coming, and you'll see lots of books out. And there's a guy in Orlando, Florida. I won't give you his name because I don't want to give him any credit. Uh, but he's already started a website because he's, I'm a self-proclaimed atheist. And here's what I'm going to do for you. Uh, for $9.99, uh, you can write me and send me uh, package paid or postage paid the letters that you want sent to your loved ones. And when, if that rapture comes that you're talking about, I'll make sure that they get your last letters. Uh, so for $9.99, you can go on his website and you can punch that in there and he's going to take care of you. Now, never mind uh, that he'll have the integrity to do it, or that that's even what he'd be thinking about. Uh, in fact, if Jesus comes, I'm sure he'll be thinking, where are those letters? Where are those letters? I've got to do something with those letters. Uh, but people like to capitalize on those things. Always have, always will. Now, here's my proposal to you today. And you're going to need to stay with me. I need to think about this, okay? Uh, my proposal to you is as we look at different prophecies within the New Testament, and certainly within the Old Testament, what you would see a lot of times is there would be kind of a a dual prophecy, kind of a foreshadowing. In other words, we see in the Old Testament, uh, we saw Passover, which was a foreshadowing of Christ. The sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of the cross, of what was to come. It was applicable for that day, and they didn't really understand uh, what was going to occur in the future, but it was a foreshadowing. So in a sense, there was a dualistic, purpose and meaning there. Now, there was the primary purpose that they could see, but then later on, as we notice in Scripture, that Jesus came and fulfilled that sacrifice upon the cross. We now celebrate, as we will today, communion or the Lord's Supper before they had Passover. Uh, You see kind of the shadow and you see now the fulfillment. And One day, we will be uh, in completeness at the banquet table of heaven uh, with God Almighty. So, as we look at a lot of prophecies, a lot of times, you can't just say... This is the only purpose. There will be a primary purpose, but a lot of times in Old Testament prophecies, and I'll give you some examples. You can look these up, and if you want to talk about them later, you can. In Isaiah 61, now many of those things have happened, but part of the prophecies of Isaiah 61 have not occurred. Uh, if you look in Joel chapter 2, when we're looking at Acts chapter 2, as Peter is speaking, and he talks about how the Spirit of the Lord will be poured out, but then you see that uh, everyone will know and everyone will... Hear and know of God's grace. And, and it talks about that in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 36, that all will know. Well, we don't think everybody knows at this point. We don't even believe that has heard. So part of that is a very prevalent, a very predominant, a very normal way uh, for prophets to write. So uh, it is so rich. It's kind of like as you look at a mountaintop. If you're on one side of the range of a mountaintop and you're looking out, over the mountaintops. You may only see one or two, but if you were up above, you could see a whole plethora of mountaintops. It's easier to see from up here than from down here. Okay? So as we read Matthew 24, most people will say, well, this is a preterist position. This happened in the past. Or they'll say, this is all the future. I propose to you that maybe it's both. Maybe Jesus is answering both questions. In fact, He's asked a couple of questions here. Maybe He's not just answering one question. Maybe He's answering for the immediate the immediate uh, present and for the future. So let's read this together. Stay with me. Uh, those of you who are disturbed, we can talk later, okay? Uh, but let's read this together and try not to do it through our previous lens. Let's just read it as Jesus is answering these questions. And we start here at the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. And they said, Do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now what's occurring here? Well, they're in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, They're here uh, on the Mount of Olives. And um, from this level, it's about 2,700, probably 2,500 Uh, Feet above sea level, and they can look over and they can see the temple that's also about 25, 2600 uh, feet above sea level. And they're looking over the city, and there's this magnificent temple that Herod has built. It started in 19 BC. Now we're in somewhere between the areas of 30 and 33 AD, as they're speaking right here. So this building has been being built for well over 50 years. It's magnificent. We know from our extra-biblical writers, uh, Josephus and Taxus, that they said that it's the most magnificent and opulent building in all of the world at this point. I mean, Josephus made some pretty big claims. He said it was completely, magnificently opulent was the exact terms that he used. It was, most scholars believe, it was about 400 yards long and 300 yards wide and went as high as 50 yards on its outside, it was in white cast stone and gold. And, and particularly from this angle, when the sun would shine, uh, Josephus said the glare would be so bright, you couldn't even look at it. So here are the disciples, and they're looking up that, and we know from the other two Gospels, that said, Jesus, look at that magnificent building. Look at that building up there. And, and they're looking at it, and, and even in our day, it would be a spectacular feat of architecture. It would be just amazing. But particularly... And this day, they're looking at it. Can can you believe that? Can you believe they built that? Can you believe how beautiful that is? And what does Jesus say? He said, I'll tell you this. You see how magnificent that building is? You see how big it is? How permanent it looks? Not one stone will be left on top of another. Wow. Now, Jesus answered that question now. I think we'd all agree right here, in 70 A.D., Titus comes through and he raises the city. And we know from history that literally they took every stone and knocked every stone down, not necessarily because they were trying to do it, because gold had seeped down from the fire when they burned the temple and they were trying to get the gold out of the stones. And Josephus said, if you had come a year later, you would never suspect that there was a city, much less a temple even there. I mean, that's how destructive it was. And so... Jesus makes a statement, and I think we'd all agree that He's talking probably about 70 A.D. here. Okay? That's a pretty evident uh, statement right there. I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. They're looking at the building, they're talking about the building, and everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? Now, he's asking, they're asking two questions here, if you'll notice. Tell us when this will happen... And what will be the sign of the coming and the end of the age? When is this going to happen? And what's the sign of the coming of the end of the age? He's actually asking two questions. It would be the equivalency of someone asking me today, they go, well, now tell me what time your services are and when are you all going to be completed with the final building of this church? Well, I can tell you immediately, I can tell you, well, we've got 9, 10, 15, 11, 30. We have our Bible studies that are going on. That's all going on right now. I can tell you about that. Um, boy, I don't know, two years, five years, ten years, fifteen years, uh, whenever it is necessary, whenever we pay off the debt, whenever we get wherever it is we need to be, then we'll look at, a, at another building and there we'll have this and that. And I can sort of prophesy, if you want to call it that, but I could answer that in the same vein, in the same conversation. You understand? So I want to propose to you that maybe that's what's occurring here. And it wouldn't be abnormal. It would be very normal as we look at some of the prophecies that were given in the New Testament. So could it be that both are occurring? That Jesus is talking about what, in fact, will happen in 70 A.D. And He's also going to be addressing some things that will happen futuristically at the second coming, the second advent of Christ. Now let's read it with that mindset, if you would, with me. And Jesus answered them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive you. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you be not alarmed. Such things must happen, uh, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so what's occurring here? Well, we, uh, that's one of those passages right here that can really be both, okay? Because we know that there were certainly earthquakes and famines during that time, Paul talks about uh, the famine in, in Corinthians that occurred. Matter of fact, we know of two different famines that happened in the New Testament. Uh, there were also earthquakes. We know there was an earthquake uh, at the time of Christ, time of the cross. Uh, so we know those things happened and we know those things are occurring now. Notice that it doesn't say that there will be a dramatic increase here, it says that these things will be occurring. So let's look at it through that lens for just a moment. Also, we know that many people came. Claiming to be the Christ before Jesus and after Jesus. Many came proclaiming to be the Messiah. Matter of fact, some rabbis went as far as to teach that there were two rabbis coming or there were two messiahs coming. There was the Messiah who would militaristically uh, wipe out the oppressive government of the Roman Empire and reestablish Jerusalem and reestablish uh, the nation of Israel. And there was there also some believed that there would also be one who would come more from a cultural or theological standpoint who would fulfill the Scripture. So uh, that's the way some. Some thought it was one, some thought it was two, but that's the way they would kind of wrestle through uh, that enigma. Then, in verse 9, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Well, we know that that happened uh, with how many of the disciples? Eleven out of the twelve disciples, if we believe Fox's Book of Martyrs, if we believe some of the extra historical documents we have, were persecuted. And, uh, and were killed. So uh, that's one that certainly could be from the, could happen uh, in the near future as well uh, in the more distant future. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Uh, and we know Nero completely blamed the fire of Rome that destroyed Rome on the Christians. At the time, many will turn away from faith and will betray and hate each other. Uh, we know there were several who left the faith, even recorded in Scripture, whether it was Demas, Alexandria, or Hymus. Uh, Paul talks about them. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, that right there is a euphemism. Okay, What that is, that's not a soteriology or a salvation statement. That is a euphemism for those who know Christ will endure. Okay, That's a statement It's used uh, periodically through Scripture. Uh, but it is not to meant to be one on this is how you get saved. You just make it to the end. He's saying that the true, that the faithful will endure. It's not the salvation mechanism in itself. Moves on here, and he says this. He says, And the gospel, verse 14, of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, uh, if you see the preterist view right there, that would be hard to say that's all in the past. Uh, and, but also, it, it would be hard to say that the gospel has been preached in every nation. Even though we know the Jews were dispersed, and because of the persecution it drove the gospel, because of the persecution of Christians it drove the gospel into all parts of the, of the earth. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken up through the prophet Daniel, then let the reader understand. Now the abomination that causes desolation, there are at least three different perspectives on what that is. Now one would be in 167 B.C. uh, Antiochus came and he literally took the temple and he placed an altar to Zeus and made a sacrifice there. So a lot of commentators would say that was the desolation time. Some would see this as something still yet to come in the future, yet others would still say even in 70 A.D. Uh, it occurred. So uh, not we're not positive which that is, but we know that it occurred. Spoken of through the prophet Daniel, and it very easily could occur again. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, we know that when Titus, the Roman general who came and literally razed the city of Jerusalem... Uh, we know that there were a million Jews that were killed in Judea. Now, it took a while for Titus to get there, and many people fled. They fled into the mountains, they lived in caves. So, this can be a re- reference to that, maybe a reference to the future as well. But then it said, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of the house uh, go down and take anything out of the house. Uh, let no one go back in the field to get his cloak. How dreadful it would be those days for the pregnant women and the nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now, remember, this is Matthew, who is a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience here. He says, hope that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. The reason he's saying that, and remember, this is not a specific day. The the, the Roman army, it probably took them at at least a month, if not a couple of months, to get their entire army down to Jerusalem, okay? So Titus came back. Down from Rome and wiped out. So they, many of the Jews were very aware of what was coming. There were some the zealots who were mounting ready for attack. There were some who believed this is going to usher in the Messiah, so we're just going to wait right here. And there are others who took off and they fled. and They go, we're getting out of here, okay? And, and so it wasn't a specific day, but he said, you know, when when this time comes, hope that it's not the Sabbath for you, because the Orthodox, hardcore Jews, they didn't believe that they could walk over a half a mile on the Sabbath day, or they'd be breaking. The Sabbath. So that term Matthew uses right there. Pray it's not the Sabbath or the winter, the time where the the waters would swell and and the rains would come and the rivers and the lakes and uh, and the seas would uh, become heavy and be hard to pass. Moves on here and he says, For then, verse 21 there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. Uh, Certainly that could be about the future days. If those days had not been cut short, then no one would survive. For the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says, You look, here's the Christ, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles and deceive even the elect if it were possible. There are certainly many people who came and said they were the Messiah, but we also know as we look at the book of Revelation, particularly if you look take a premillennial viewpoint, uh, that there will be uh, the beast or there will be the one who comes and deceives. There will be a false prophet. So we know those things are still yet to occur as well. And then he said, See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out there. If Another says, Here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the sea it is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Second coming. Now, there, there's, a, there's a part right there where I look at and I know he's definitely, or in my perspective, he's talking about the future. The Son of Man has not come. The second advent has not yet occurred. Wherever there is carcass, there will be vultures as well. Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Uh, I would certainly take that perspective and say, here, this is futuristic of the coming of Christ. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather His elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens and to the earth and to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. And as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer... Is near. Even so, when you see these things, you know the end is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Now there's a hard verse. I tell you these things, that this generation will not pass away until these things have passed. This generation, what does he mean this generation? Several perspectives on what generation means. Some would look at that and they would say, he's talking about the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel will not pass away until the second coming of Christ. Uh, that's not the way that it's predominantly used in the New Testament, by the way. Uh, but some would look at it and say, now, uh, well, see, that, that proves the preterist position, the past. He's talking to those right there. I think what he's doing, I think he is talking to the disciples right here. And remember, he's answering two questions, okay? So, yes, you're going to see, many of you are going to see the destruction of Israel uh, but that doesn't wipe away that there's still a second coming. There's a future. Uh, there's the second coming of Christ. Because He ends it right here. Remember what we said 300 times in the New Testament. Jesus, uh, make the, the claim is made that Jesus will come again. Verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, this is the truth. I am coming again. First of all, you can count on it. 70 A.D. is coming. They don't know. They didn't get that date, by the way. But uh, hey, the destruction of the temple is coming. There will be massive destruction. But also, you can count on it. I'm coming again. Count on it. Write it down. Jesus is coming. Uh, you know, and for me, that's where I go back to. I go back to this. Now, Most people just kind of take a position called panmillennialism. You know, we talked about how there's premillennialism, there's amillennialism. Most people say panmillennialism, which just means it will all pan out in the end. Uh, Now, I think we want to study it further than that, but the truth of it is Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Jesus is coming again. And that's just a fact. And we need to recognize that, and we need to celebrate that and prepare for that. You know, I have a son, and uh, he loves my mother-in-law. He calls her Nana. And he's always so excited about Nana coming. Nana's coming. And some days he'll get up, is Nana coming today? We'll go, no. Nana may be coming back next. Nana's coming next week or the week after. He doesn't know what weeks mean. It's only three. He's almost three. And he'll go, Nana's coming soon. Nana's coming soon. And he's excited about that. And he doesn't understand how she's going to get here. He doesn't know what time it's going to be. He doesn't know what day it's going to be. He just knows know that his Nana's coming. And he's excited about it. For the believer, that's us. Jesus is coming. If we know Him as our Savior and Lord, we need to celebrate that. We need to recognize that. We need to be ready. We don't need to be in this mindset that, you know what, if I can just get this paid off and I can get this done, then, God, I'm going to get faithful with you. If I can get all these things done and all these things taken care of, then I'm going to get on the bandwagon. I'm going to get there. I'm going to develop my relationship with God. I'm going to make sure I know Him. Hey, we need to be ready. Thirdly, we need to get others ready. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, I'm coming again. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is coming? Has it begun one of those things that we've heard so marginalized or so grandized that we just kind of let it fly off the top of our head? Let me tell you, for the believer, it not only is our hope, it is our faith. There was the first advent that He came, and He took the sins of the world upon Him for all those who would call Him Lord and Savior. But the second advent, He will take those who know Him. There will be a second coming, my friend. The question is, are you ready? The third question is this. Are we helping others to get ready? Are we helping others to get ready? We need to ask that question. You know, in Stockholm, uh, Sweden, uh, they had to ask a a nurse there to change his name. There's a male nurse there. And they had to ask him to change his name because his name was Jesus. And um, they asked him to start going by another name because what would happen, inevitably, they would be working with some patients. They said, you know, uh, I'm going to have to go right now, but Jesus will be here in the morning to take care of you. Or Jesus will be coming in here just in just a little bit. And so patience started to get real nervous and start to worry about Jesus is coming. So he had to change his name, of all things, Emmanuel. Uh, I had to change his name to Emmanuel. And, you know, for those who don't know Christ, it does strike a fear. And I don't want to use that ever as a Billy Club, but I want us to deal with the reality that Jesus is coming. We need to be ready And are we helping others to get ready? Have we helped them to understand that we must first admit that we are sinners, unable to save ourselves? Number two, B. Have we come to the place where we've shared to them must believe that Jesus Christ, that He lived, that He was God in the flesh, that He lived here on earth, He was crucified, He died, but on the third day He rose again, and that He will come again. And C confess Him as Lord. Transfer our trust from any deeds that we do to quit trying to get ourselves good enough, right enough, holy enough, and transfer it to what He did upon the cross. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's not of our own merits. It's not of our own efforts. But it is a free gift of God to receive that. To transfer our trust from our deeds to what He did upon the cross. And now I do deeds because He has saved me. Because He has received me. What about you, my friend? Are you ready this morning? Are you helping to get others ready? That's the question we all need to answer. I want us to take a few moments of silence. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But I want us to pray silently and corporately. I want you, first of all, have you come to the place to where you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Where you've admitted you're a sinner. You believe what He did upon the cross for you. And you've confessed Him and accepted Him as your Lord. You've transferred your trust from anything you could do to what He has done. Have you received Him? If not, I want to invite you to come even at this moment and receive Him.